That's too much. That's too much. Hi. Hello, London. Do you uh, have a title? Yeah, let's do it. There it is. <laughs> this feels crazy. Uh, it feels crazy uh, 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 to, do, to, to, to teach a master class. Uh, because I think the idea of a master screenwriter seems uh, bananas. Uh, screenwriting is very mysterious. If, and if anyone calls themselves a master screenwriter, they are about to write a terrible screenplay. <laughs> uh, so uh, so this, is, this is sort of like what we think <laughs> screenwriters should look like, right? This guy looks great. He's, He's got a anthem. typewriter. Look at that typewriter. That, he writes everything on. I think the Brads are the Brads are in the screenplay. <laughs> in <laughs> right? Perfectly. You type it on the on the yeah, with the holes already in the paper. Uh, this is what you guys <laughs> yeah. for sure. Th uh, this is what you guys are getting tonight uh, is Instead uh, you're gonna get this. these dudes. <laughs> get this picture, very glamorous, taken at a planet Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> with like the th Eighth build star of Cloudy with a chance of meatballs, uh, and so we re so we retitled this. Uh, oh yeah, we were gonna ask an audience poll, which is yeah. Uh, how many of you uh, sing and dance? Raise your hand. Show of hands. Okay, that's not it great. Is a fairly anemic. <laughs> not response. great. Okay, good to know. Okay, okay. noted. <laughs> we'll put that in the noted data bank. Uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, so we now are going to retitle this thing, which is called uh, Chris and Phil's BAFTA Non-Master Class Regarding <laughs> Writing Things Down for Money, colon, A Rope of Sand, which was a title that I ch took a challenge in uh, university to title all of my school papers, something, 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 colon, A Rope of Sand, and I did. <laughs> And it always works, guys. It can work in any situation. It's always, there's some tenuous connection that you're making. It's still going strong, too. That's right. We tried to put this thing on the end of the Lego movie, but it didn't. Did not work. The marketing department frowned upon it. Anyway. Uh, yeah, apologies. So, uh, back to the idea of uh, singing and dancing. Do you um, feel like it was because the slide was in the wrong order? Quite possibly. Got it's it. quite possible. Got anyway, it. the point is that. Uh, <laughs> Um, you ask a bunch of year two students uh, how many of you uh, sing and dance, and everybody raises their hand. And you ask anybody 17 and older, and very few people, some drama geeks, will raise their hand. Um, and, and, we, and when we started working on the Lego movie, we, we, this was a ma major question that we were asking, which is what happens between the age of seven and 17? Is it that you get super duper, you learn how to be embarrassed, right? When you're like four years old, you don't know what that is. But by the time you like get to the 10 or 11, like you start to understand the social implications of telling a joke that doesn't land or, or, or having an idea that other people don't like. And the other thing that happens is you start to learn about the classics. You start to learn about masterpieces. And then be, you, know, you go from like this, like thinking that like anyone can be creative. <laughs> The thinking that like creative people like have to look real handsome and be really good at what they do, <laughs> and 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 we are here to dispel that myth if it hasn't already been dispelled by just our faces and general demeanor and and lack of preparation. We're trying to demystify <laughs> the idea of an artistic genius. The only geniuses that we know are people who really really work 
really hard, work their butts off, uh, and try and make things better over and over and over again. So we are going to endeavor to teach you essentially everything uh, that we know in less than an hour, which is very sad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've been working together for almost 20 years, it's and true. this is all we have to show for it. Okay, so we're going to we're going to show you a few things, but just about everything we know. Uh, number one, make the stage directions very short. Uh, you want a lot of white space on the page. Uh, it makes the, these people are reading scripts. They're reading sometimes five in a weekend. You want them to read it in 40 minutes. You're, you're, the, 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 the reading experience is very important. Uh, the second thing. Thank you very that's much. That's it. That's all we have. <laughs> um, that's very bad. There's, we have one. I've got one more thing, which is very important to me, which is we have another uh, one space after a period. Um, it, if you put two spaces after a period, you are a barbarian. Don't do it. I know we said we like a lot of white space on the page, but not between the period and the next word. If you do that, you're a waste of space. Exactly. Right? All right. That's I what feel I like think. you guys, we've already covered a lot. <laughs> I hope you have a lot of questions. Um, uh, OK. But okay, we can. We'll start. With we are going to think of more. We're going to think of more uh, things that we know. Uh, we'll, we're, the only way to do that is for us to start at the beginning. <laughs> so this is like the first movie, okay? Uh, and what used to happen is like uh, a shaman would like take you into this cave, and you would probably be under the influence, and and uh, and show you these magical pictures, and they would blow your mind, like mind-blowing imagery. <laughs> it would dazzle you, right? <laughs> uh, and this person would tell you this story, and, and it would, and like the, these people 30,000 years ago, they, they, they believed that this was real. They believed that they were like seeing like a real god or whatever, and they would tell you these incredible stories. I, I don't know what story this is. It doesn't appear to make a whole lot of sense. The giant spider being attacked by a snake or something. But, what's, but, but, the, but, the, but people thought that the shaman was like full of magic and he had all this magic dust. But the truth is that the shaman isn't doing the magic trick. You're doing the magic trick. What's interesting to me about this first you know, stab at art making is that it, 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 it leans on this innate ability that all human beings have our brains, what separates us from the monkeys, is that we have narrative. That, that our brains function with narrative. So the first story probably went like this. Like, hey man, if you uh, go over that cliff, you're probably going to die. It's a lot about survival. If you're going <laughs> to, if you're going to eat, don't eat those berries, the red berries, you'll die. Don't sneak up on that weird spider thing or you'll die. Yeah. Um, it's a lot about death. Uh, but but it's really like the major technological innovation of, of this period. <laughs> uh, and, and so w w the reason we want to talk about this is, is storytelling is an innate ability that all human brains have. And, and sometime between the age of seven <laughs> and the age of 17, we've sort of pretended that that isn't true. But the truth is, is that that's true, and, and, and the audience is telling the story. The shaman or a screenwriter is only creating the conditions for the audience to project a story onto the screen. That, is, is, that, that to us is what's essential about screenwriting. And we come from animation. 
That's what allows you to turn these inanimate objects into a parent and a child, right? And, 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 and so, so that's what we sort yeah. of, yeah. You're projecting your own emotion onto these images. And you, and you can be scared about you're going to die if you eat the berries. You can be excited. You can laugh. You can cry. Um, you can be embarrassed. Um, you can be inspired. And you're projecting all of that on, onto these uh, images so that you don't, it's a safe space so that you can, you don't actually have to have the actual uh, experience of, of dying yourself. You can go home. You experience that emotion, now you don't have to go cut yourself to feel something. Right. Um. So that's super important, right? <laughs> Your job as a screenwriter is just to like set these things up in just such a way that the audience, without feeling dumb, uh, 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 figures out the story on their own. Um, there's another thing that is important about this, which is that anybody can do this job <laughs> uh, if we haven't hammered that home enough. Um, so we're going to show you a history of our personal failures, uh, <laughs> starting with our college experience, uh, where we met. Uh, we're gonna, we decided to do a contest, which is uh, we're going to show you our student films and, then, uh, and see who can stand watching theirs the longest. <laughs> OK, we spent like an entire year on these things. They're epic length for animation. All right, you, you start it. Go ahead. You got the oh, I got the clicker. Okay. Right there it is. Does it have any sound? Oh, oh there you go. There you go. That part's okay. Okay, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> All right, and this one is mine. Okay, that's enough. Okay. <laughs> All right, so we got, so, so by some, like, accident of fate, we got jobs. And, and this was our first job at Walt Disney Television Animation. And uh, we spent a whole year trying to come up with uh, uh, hilarious Saturday morning cartoon ideas. And we failed. Uh, and nothing. The, the only thing that ever came out of it was this 90-second short, which was ostensibly supposed to be educational content that was legally required by the network to show on television. And this never aired because it was not educational enough. No commercial value whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> or educational uh, value. So then we started uh, working on a number of failed uh, sitcoms. Uh, each one uh, got canceled, uh, sometimes before we even finished writing. Right, we wrote a pilot that got canceled before we finished the first act. <laughs> um, and, and then we made this crazy show uh, called Clone High, which was about clones of historical figures who go to school together and date and stuff, like uh, Abraham Lincoln and Joan of Arc and Cleopatra and whatnot. Um, and there was also this uh, character <laughs> who was like the clone of Gandhi. And we, 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 we love this character because he was like, there was so much pressure to live up to like the great uh, original Gandhi that he kind of just like flamed out and uh, tried to become this, uh, this uh, aspirant party animal, uh, which didn't go over very well uh, in the country of India. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's like very famous there. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so there was a hunger strike, and our show was taken off the air. Another failure. That's failure number five. This is failure more. number four, five, and six. Uh, and then uh, this is, I think this is our, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, so this is an illustration of the fact that there's no overnight success. 
And one of our favorite animation directors is Chuck Jones. And Chuck Jones went to uh, CalArts before it was called CalArts. And he had a drawing teacher that said, all of you have 10,000 bad drawings inside of you. And you need to get them out as fast as possible. <laughs> Uh, which, is, which is basically that I think uh, especially young artists need to be very prolific. You need to make things and not be so uh, precious about whether they're any good or not. Because I have a, I have a secret for you. They're not good. <laughs> they're, they're flawed, and you need to find out what the flaws are as fast as possible. Um, so anyone can do this job. Failure is inevitable. Uh, don't worry about it so much. Um, so then we went to work on how I mentioned whether it was not a failure. Not a failure. So we quit that job uh, <laughs> to go uh, make this movie called Collider with a Chance of Meatballs. Uh, this is the perfect Hollywood movie because it's filled with incredible set pieces and has no story or characters. <laughs> uh, but so. it was a favorite kid's book of both of ours, uh, and we thought um, you could do it as a sort of uh, Irwin Allen style uh, disaster movie, like Armageddon, but funny on purpose, was the idea. So we were like, okay, what are the characters in these movies? There's always a scientist, and the scientist is, is uh, uh, it, 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 you know, the scientist is always tortured and nobody ever listens to him, so wouldn't it be neat to tell a story about him? So we started developing this character of Flint Lockwood, and the idea was he was a genius scientist who worked for NASA, and he had gone up into outer space to deploy this machine that was going to uh, uh, cure the world of hunger, and instead it messes up and gives everybody the hiccups. And when he gets back down to Earth, he's a pariah, and nobody wants to hang out with him, and he grows a huge beard uh, and, and rolls around in a taco truck for years trying to like, fix this machine from the ground. And, and we created this character that was pretty, had kind of a big chip on his shoulder and was obsessed with uh, getting back on top and was kind of unlikable. And so we were fired <laughs> uh, about a year uh, after, after, after um, uh, starting to work on the screenplay. And the people who fired us then took our script and took out all of the jokes and left all of the gaping story flaws that were in our original script, uh, exposing. And then they got fired. Um, so our screenplay uh, got two people fired, two sets of people fired, four people lost their jobs as uh, a result. Uh, and strangely and so, enough. Yeah, strangely enough, they took the guys that got four people fired, and they decided to hire them back again <laughs> and promote them, in fact, <laughs> and say, like, why don't you guys come on and direct the movie? So we, uh, we got hired to direct a movie that wasn't any good because we had done a bad job writing it. And, and so the thing that we did, uh, the very first act of our, of our directorial career was to throw out our own screenplay and start fresh. And, and one of the things that happens when, when you, know, you go onto a movie when it's in the middle of production is people are super suspicious of you, uh, and they all, have their, they all had all of their own ideas about what the movie should be, and some of the folks got passed over uh, for the directing job. And so it was a, a, a pretty hostile uh, environment, and we panicked. Uh, they had this big meeting, they put everyone in a room, and they said, uh, uh, Lord and Miller, like, how are you going to fix the movie? And we're kind of like, uh, it's our first day. We don't have our ID cards yet, man. <laughs> uh, and, and then we panicked, and we basically said, well, what do you guys think? And, and uh, even though we didn't know it at the time, that turned out to be a very important day, because uh, instead of us trying to dictate to everybody what we thought the movie needed to be, we started listening. 
and, and, uh, and that allowed all these folks on the crew who had really smart and great filmmakers unto themselves to, to, um, to tell us what they thought and to, to get all, all of their ideas onto the table. It was really eye-opening for us because even though it's frustrating to hear people critique your own work, it was, it was really healthy, and we learned a lot about the shortcomings of the movie and how it could be better. So that kind of unlikable character with a chip on his shoulder that we started with turned into uh, 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 more of a... Uh, the movie came, became about a gifted child in a small town that didn't have anybody to connect with. And... But it still wasn't engaging. It was, it was lots of jokes. It was funny, but it wasn't. <laughs> nobody cared. So we were almost refired. And so then we asked the chairman of the studio, what do you want? And she said, I want a story. <laughs> um, and, um, and we learned our second lesson on this movie, which is that uh, movies are not about a person. They're about a relationship. All of them are about a relationship. Um, and there's some central relationship in every movie, um, and that's what stories are. Um, and so, so we had this peculiar situation where we had like spent so much money on the movie that everybody hated that uh, they couldn't stop it. They realized that they would lose more money by shutting it down, and then they would have, then they would be blamed. Uh, uh, then they would if they let us finish the movie, and then they could blame us. Uh, so they let us finish the movie. It was like the most pathetic green light in the history of cinema. But uh, we weren't allowed to sort of build any more assets. We had built all these assets for one movie, which didn't work. Um, and then they said, okay, you have all these parts, and now you have to make a new story out of it. It was sort of like the old studio system when they would say, we got Douglas Fairbanks and a pirate ship. We need to make a pirate picture next week. Write us a script. Right. Um, and so that's what we ended up doing. So we had this character named, we just called him Tackle Shop Tim, and he was kind of like way, way, way down on the call sheet. He was like the 20th lead or something like that. There was a scene where Flint had to go into the tackle shop to get uh, 100,000 feet of fishing line for a, a project that he was doing. And it was like the only scene anybody liked because it was a really clear relationship. He walks in and there's like fishing line anywhere, everywhere. And he walks up to this guy and is like, I'd like to buy uh, 1 million feet of fishing line or something like that. And it, and it cracked everybody up, and we said, what if this guy was Flint Lockwood's father? And, uh, and so we took our stock players and like, made the movie about this relationship, that Flint Lockwood was trying to make this invention in order to get the attention of his dad. And, his, and at the same time, his dad was like, trying to get the son to like, join in the family business. And it seemed like a really heartbreaking relationship between two people who really care about one another, but just like misfire and don't like speak the same language. And we have been resistant to doing a sort of father-son story because it felt overused. We've seen that, that storyline a million times. But the reason why it's overused is because it's really elemental. It's an experience, uh, parent-child relationships are experienced that everyone has that's happened throughout human history. And your monkey 30,000-year-old caveman brain understands that. And, 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 and one of the things that has proven true in our career is that even if you take something that's as straightforward and classic as a father-son story, you can express it in a way that's totally unique to you. So one of the rules that we had on Cloudy as many times as we had to rewrite it was it, it's never going to feel like somebody else wrote this. It always needs to feel like we did. So, and this was seen specifically with the, based on a conversation I had with my dad outside of the editing room where he was trying to send me a link on a web page, and I had to talk him through how to 
drag uh, the mouse across the screen. Because he was like, I want to send you this website, but it's got too many numbers and letters in it. And I was like, well, just click on the, on the, the website and send it to me. He's like, ah, it goes beyond the edge of the, the screen. You're like, well, you can just, just drag the mouse across. And it was 20 minutes of getting him to send me this link to a web page. Uh, and so then we put it in the movie. But so that, you know, then, then like the uh, most unlikely thing in, could, happens in the movie, which is that Flint's dad uh, winds up giving him like the very pep talk that he needs to go and save the day at the end. And, and, and one of the things that was really fun for us is this monkey thought translator is the thing that, while it turned out to be at the start of the movie, it's the thing that drives his dad crazy. At the end, it's the thing that's able to translate the ideas of his dad into loving thoughts uh, uh, that his son is dying to hear. And so it is the weirdest possible scene, and yet it's the most like red meat uh, 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 universal idea, which and is we, like, all I want to hear is my dad tell me that I'm great. Uh, we just found a super unique and strange and, 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 I, and I think like partial to us way of expressing that. And, uh, and we learned that what, if you care, then the jokes are twice as funny as if, you'd, if you're not invested. Um, and so movies, uh, feelings sell movies, and movies are relationships, but not just the relationships that are on screen. Movies are relationships because there's, they're all collaborations. No one's making a movie in a vacuum. Um, and just like on that first day when we said, what do you think, we kept that idea up the whole time making this movie and, and listened to people because these movies are for audiences, and they're made by big groups of people, and good ideas came from all over the place. For example, um, so we had this scene that uh, in the book, this, this is a, basically a frame from the book, which is that they're, they're, there's folks overlooking this beautiful valley with this beautiful jello mold. And we, we created this whole scene that takes place on this hill, and it was hilarious. And the poor story artist uh, had drawn it like 18 times and spent more or less a year coloring things in with like a yellow highlighter. <laughs> and then uh, our editor, uh, Bob, who, Fisher. Bob Fisher, who's like a real um, taciturn guy, uh, like saw the scene, he was like, I want to go inside that thing. And we were like, what happened to Bob? <laughs> uh, uh, and and he, uh, he said, and so he wanted to go inside the thing, and we were all like slapped ourselves in the forehead and said, that is a great idea. By the way, it created the most complex uh, computer animated set in the history of mankind. <laughs> um, but it was worth it because the scene, it totally transformed the scene. We got to like deliver on this, um, on this thought that like Flint was going to charm this woman that he cared about by showing her something she'd never seen before and connecting with her, um, uh, 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 you know, with this like spectacular environment. And, and, uh, and it just, it just makes the movie. And, and it's just another example of how if you're open to what someone else thinks and, you're, and you listen carefully, you can take something and continue to make it your own. Oh, this is something we're very proud of. At the beginning of that movie, that's what it says. Right. So at the beginning of Cloudy, we like changed the, the, the stage, the, the, um, we, we changed the opening so that it had this crazy possessory credit because we really felt like, and we have on all of our films, that... The, the movie's really written by everybody and created by everybody in concert. Um, and it is a, it's a pretty messy process, um, but it, uh, it sort of yields the most universal result. It's that thing with like, 
the audience is telling the story. The movie is kind of slowly telling you what it wants to be. It's revealing itself to you like a, like a sculpture or something. And then it makes you seem like a genius, masterclass giving type of person. But in reality, <laughs> it's just um, rewriting and listening and being open to good ideas and then working on it over and over and over again in a collaborative manner. And collaboration is um, something that is uh, extra part of our everyday yeah. life because we uh, have this partnership where we collaborate uh, on everything. And basically all we do is make movies about it. That's... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so there are some cons to having a writing partner. You get... I think we worked out the math. You get half right? the money. That's one, one piece of data, a data point. Um, oh, you can do two. Okay, this is good. Yeah, yeah, you we're going to write this down. Interactive, this is real interactive. Multimedia stuff. This is good. Okay, <laughs> that's it. Okay, that's... Okay. Yeah. It takes twice as long. Okay. Okay, twice, at, t uh, twice as long. Yeah. Yep. It's, yep. Uh, it's, I would say, two times as challenging also. Twice yep. as long, twice as challenging. Yep. But the work is 1.3 times as good. <laughs> um, so it's all worth it. Yeah. That's good math. That makes sense. That's good. Um, the point, one of the, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of benefits uh, because much like, uh, you know, you have to collaborate with your entire uh, crew when you're making a movie um, and you have to collaborate with uh, the studio and producers um, uh, when you're writing a movie. Um, there's, you're going to have to collaborate. You're going to have to defend your ideas some, at some point. And uh, when we work together, we're constantly having to defend our ideas to each other. But if we can't defend them, if I can't defend my idea to him, then it's not good enough for me to defend it to a crew of 400 people. So, But it's super frustrating because he only agrees with me like 95% of the time. <laughs> so there's um, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of conflict. This is the biggest fight we've ever had in our lives. It was about Abraham Lincoln's nose. <laughs> uh, Chris wanted it to be a, a square nose, and I wanted it to be, or sorry, remember, I wanted it to be square, and you wanted it to be round? Yes. Why did we fight so much about this? I can't you even remember. remember. Who we wanted what? Anyway, we, we resolved on a rounded square. <laughs> <laughs> Splitting the difference, STD, always works. Um, <clears throat> people misunderstand when we say, oh, let's STD. Um, and so, uh, anyway, so they're pros. They're pros. Uh, yeah, so people ask us uh, how do we work together as a team, and this is why. Well, we thought we would set up this, uh, this place as kind of a writer's office. In the words of Montel Jordan, this is how we do it. Yeah. Um, so we have. Uh, it's a bit clean, so we, did, we brought some supplies. Here we go. This is good. That's good. There we go. That's more. That's probably closer. Oh, good. To Some it. of us. That's that's about probably enough. That's probably enough. There's a lot of paper. There's a lot of like scripts everywhere, and then there's a lot of stuff on the. Yeah, that's I think. That's how we start. Yeah, that's kind of like art directed, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. So then. The first thing that we do when we're trying to write something, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> this is really funny. You made this. It says, BAFTA Masterclass written by Phil Lord and Chris Miller based on all our knowledge and experience. There you go. Uh, that's important. That's a good screenplay. Okay. Uh, what happens now? 
So, uh, so we do step one of what we do when we're working together, which is? Yeah, we get coffee. <laughs> right. That's really super important. Um, there is a myth that people think that because the stuff that we write is pretty uh, out there, that we must be uh, drunk or high or something while we're working. And the truth is, other than caffeine, there's, uh, it is a drug and alcohol-free zone when we're working. I couldn't possibly get anything done uh, if, if, if we were We're also like way too square. That's also true. <laughs> yeah. I think if you've ever seen either of the Jump Street films, you'll know that we have no idea what it's actually like to be on drugs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly true. But coffee, coffee is great. It's full of antioxidants. Uh, the enlightenment, uh, that wouldn't have happened without coffee and different coffee shops, so that's very important. That, then you got to get down to business, okay? Step two is uh, procrastinate. <laughs> and we've tried to eliminate this from our routine, but it, no matter what, it takes like 20 minutes just to sort of get in the zone, whether we're talking about what crazy thing Donald Trump said that yesterday or, or what our favorite Pringles flavor is, which was asked to us uh, over the Internet. Um, Mine is chemical potato. <laughs> um, it starts the process of batting ideas around, getting loosened up, and getting into uh, a more open mode of, of creativity, which is, uh, if you've ever heard John Cleese talk about creativity, uh, he describes there as an open mode and a closed mode. And the open mode is where um, ideas flow. There's no bad ideas, um, and, you're, um, and you're exploring uh, in a very free and messy way. Yes, and, and, and I think one of the hard things for us when we were uh, learning to work together is, is it's hard to get both people in the open mode at the same time. Because what happens is like he starts pitching something and I go, well, let me try to evaluate that. Eventually you learn that in order to work better, you both need to be in the open mode at the same time. You both just have to commit to the fact that like we're not going to, com we're not committing to anything right now. We're just going to like chase this weird idea, you know, like, like, uh, I don't know, I had this idea about like office supplies who go to school, right? And uh, so... And I'll say, okay, all right, well, that's, that, that's a good idea. Or maybe it's like, if it's office supplies that go to an office because they're in office supplies, uh, maybe you can that have That makes like more a, sense. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Maybe they hang out in this like supply closet and there's like a post-it that like, you know, like he's, uh, um, you know, he's like, he's like shedding or something like that. And there's a stapler, that's the boss, and he'll... And it, yeah, a paper clip who like likes to bring everybody together. I'm telling you, this was this stuff. part was not scripted, guys. This is fresh <laughs> here. Fresh comedy for you. I know that we have said a lot. You about... need to be in the open mode too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a lot about having to rewrite stuff, and we didn't actually rewrite this presentation. No. And no, take no, our no, own lessons. First draft. So so then you know <laughs> it, you 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 know you throw a bunch of that. Uh, crap out there, and then you really start to go like, okay, that's that's like a crummy idea. Like, let's move on to something else, and and you basically repeat that process over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. closed mode is where you're editing and sort of picking out the mess from the mess, the good little bits, and it's a very low yield situation. Yeah, if we're on set shooting, like if you have like two or three like really wonderful crowd pleasing moments in a day, that's like a huge win. The magic of the movies is that they get edited down. Nobody wants to see the four-hour assembly of 22 Jump Street. It's horrible. <laughs> uh, we didn't even watch it. We only watched it like a reel at a time because it was so crummy. And, 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 uh, and it's the same thing uh, for screenwriting, even more so. Um, so, um, so we should talk about how really specifically we get into write the, the writing process. Yes. Which is 
Um, oh, yeah. We trust our audience. I think this is supposed to be about uh, the <laughs> idea that, like, when you get notes from your partner or from a test screening or from a friend who reads a script, it, it's really important to take those notes on faith. You can put your energy into arguing about whether um, that's uh, a right impulse to have. But the truth is, is that is a human being who watched something or read something um, with their, uh, you know, as earnestly as possible, and they reacted in some way. And that reaction is truth. Because again, what we're trying to do is get you to tell the story. So if you're telling some other story than the one that I think that I want you to tell, then I have to take that as really important information and figure out how to solve for it. Um, so Sometimes that people will pitch you a solution which you don't like, but there's something underlying that the solution, which is the issue that they're confused about something or they uh, or they are turned off by something, and, right. and you have to honor that. So when we're our best selves, when he gives uh, me a note on a scene, I might not like his uh, suggestion for how to fix it, but I try to take on faith that uh, that the that the impulse behind it is a real problem. And we do that with the studio, and, and, uh, and we do that with test audiences as well. Um, so here's our super simple writing process um, that we have used, have developed now over all of these uh, movies and television shows. So Very, very simple. So <laughs> we outline story beats um, for quite a long time until we can't stand talking about it anymore, and we have to go write it. Then we split up scenes based on who's uh, more excited to write the scene and or who understands what the scene is about better than the other one. Then we switch and, uh, and rewrite each other, usually um, to, the, to the great displeasure of the other person. And then we get together in an environment such as this uh, and, and, uh, talk and, it through. and talk it through. And, uh, and sometimes uh, it can get emotional, but um, then we just drink more coffee and it's okay. And, uh, and we try to, uh, um, you know, we, we basically repeat that over and over and over again as many times as possible. Then we show it to our friends. They tear it apart. We repeat the steps. And then we give it to the studio. And they tear it apart, usually slightly less than we tore it apart or our friends tore it apart. And then we repeat that process again. And then we're almost done. <laughs> <laughs> So we do that some more, right? And then we'll like do a table read, and we'll have it, and we'll uh, we'll bring a bunch of actors in, and they'll say a bunch of stuff out loud. And, and when you hear it out loud, it's you so embarrassing. It's, it's terrible. I cannot tell you. We've also, you know, we we had to do a bunch of auditions for the, the movie we're making right now, and we wrote these scenes. I can't tell you how embarrassing it is to hear somebody say something out loud, five hundred times, <laughs> five hundred different people whiffing on the same bad joke. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's, um, it's dehumanizing, is what it is. Um, <laughs> anyway, then we go to shoot the movie, and we're still rewriting on, on the day, realizing that the situation needs, needs some adjustment. And then we edit it together, and we realize it still needs some more adjustment. And then we record ADR, um, and then we finally uh, pass out in a shivering lump. So that's our super efficient writing process that Very you guys easy. can do, too, if you want to. Yeah. Um, Yes, that's famous uh, actual uh, genius master screenwriter William Goldman said writing. He looks writing. great. See? He and Aaron Sorkin, these guys, they know, they know how to look good. And they um, don't go to Planet Hollywood. Um, Very important. Um, do you know uh, who consumes the most mental health benefits of any 
um, Healthcare Collective in America? It's the Writers Guild of America. <laughs> I, like, I sat next to a guy on a plane once who was like worked in the insurance business, and he said that was like a cliched joke like punchline at like their conventions is they talk about the Writers Guild and how much they have to go to the psychiatrist. <laughs> um, and this is the reason writing is rewriting. It's this agonizing yes. process. And I've, everybody I've known that has made uh, works that are great all share in common a sort of obsessive, neurotic desire to make it better, even when it's already good. Um, and if I hear somebody say, oh, I'm really excited about my screenplay. I think it's really great. I'm super happy with it. I have a bias where I think your screenplay is terrible and this is bad. <laughs> uh, um, because I, the closest I've ever come to saying something like that was like, well, it's on its way. Um, that means like you think you're going to win yeah. an Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, slow down, buddy. <laughs> Don't get too big for your britches. So um, what we, and you know, we are very obsessive and never happy and never satisfied. So, so it's super We're fun. telling you that anyone can do this job, but don't do this job. <laughs> it's total misery. If you can do anything else. We don't have any other skills, so we're stuck. Um, so once we get into these scenes, like when we're, when we're talking about them together, we're asking ourselves a million questions about like, is this scene necessary? Does the story work without it? Um, is there a way to tell the story more efficiently? Is I wish I liked this character more. Like, I feel like this is a stock move. Is there something more specific? Could we observe something about somebody that we know? Oh, this reminds me so yeah. much of like my friend's mom, and yeah. she has this very specific, you know, like, right. human problem. And how could I express that through like Lego Batman or something? Um, yeah, and you're, we're constantly going like, isn't this? Does this feel like a generic version of this scene? How can we make it more specific? How can we make it uh, the twist on what you've seen before, but still get to the, the elemental truth? And, and the other thing that's really, that we, we spend a lot of time thinking about is that the undivided attention of human beings is such a precious resource. One of the things that's really special about movies is a lot of times people go into a theater like this and they watch them completely with no other distractions. And if that's going to happen, you need to honor that by trying to present something that's worth going into a theater for. Or, you know, or to go back to the beginning, like go, that's, that, Shaman is taking you into a cave 30,000 years ago to give you some kind of insight. And, and I, sometimes we fall short, but we're always, trying, uh, we're always trying to deliver something that's worth the journey. And you're asking like, for the character, is this character unique and specific enough? Do I know what this character would do in any situation? I uh, used this thing that, uh, do you guys ever, did they make, did the show Cheers ever make it across the pond? Yeah. Um, and so there was an episode of Cheers where Cliff Clavin went on Jeopardy, uh, which was a great uh, uh, you know, quiz show, uh, and it was a great episode, and you automatically knew what was going to happen or what types of things could happen if that character was on Jeopardy. And so there's sort of this test where you can ask yourself, um, is this, what would this character do uh, if they were on a quiz show? Uh, and you think, you know, like think of like Homer Simpson or a character that you know is a really specific character. Yeah, you, you can write it. Like the character is so clear. You go, oh, I know what Homer would do on Jeopardy and how terrible that would go. Um, but if you have a character, you're like, oh, they'd be pretty good. They'd get some answers right. They probably wouldn't <laughs> cause any trouble. Then you don't have a specific character that's specific enough. So you're constantly trying to do that. <laughs> This is important. This is an yes. important step. Uh, it's basically just to, to point to reiterate that we, you know, 
you've got to hate your own work. You have to be your own <laughs> worst critic because no one else is going to care as much as you will. And, and uh, it's that thing of like in the open mode, you need to be as creative and, uh, and as, as open-minded as possible. When you're in the closed mode, you really have to like ask yourself, is this good enough? And we never think it's good enough. I don't know what happened to us. We, we, our parents are really nice. Uh, uh, but for some yeah. reason, we are never sad. A studio executive once said, uh, uh, the only positive emotion you can feel in this business is relief. Um, so everybody do this job. Yay, screenwriting. Um, what? Uh, so OK, so we then took this process and applied it to the, the, the movies that we've worked on since. So 21 Jump Street, we had this, uh, we had this script that we, that we all really liked, but we thought it could be a little bit better. So we convened a big room of all of our friends. And, uh, and our producer, who's the greatest guy, called us on the phone screaming, why are all these writers and directors invited to the table read? Don't you realize they're all going to have Ideas, <laughs> different ideas. <laughs> We're like, yes, that was what we hoped for. Uh, and 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 Neil's point, and I understand it, is that nobody wants to take something that's pretty good, <laughs> right, and like turn it into something like considerably worse. <laughs> uh, well, we do, we do. We're willing to risk that. Uh, in order because he also <laughs> said one very smart thing uh, shortly thereafter, which was, I only have one boss, and that's the movie. And, then, and that lets you know that the audience will let you know if it's good or not. And yes, we're kind of wandering around somewhat blindly in the dark trying to find uh, our way. And, but there, you always have the ability to show it to an audience, show it to a friend, show it to somebody that you trust, or put it, put it up in front of a group. And the audience will tell you if it's good or not. And so you can continue to, to get it, make it better and, and uh, see what works and what doesn't. So the Lego movie, uh, it started out much differently than how it turned out. Our original draft of the screenplay, Emmett was not, uh, had a mom who was a, master, a secret master builder. Um, and the idea was he was raised by master builders. And because of their like, autocratic society that they lived in, they hid. Emmett's abilities and, and told him that he was a normal person so that he would be safe. And so one day he built something crazy and then got thrown in jail. Emmett's mom uh, discovers that he's on the television and he's been thrown in jail. I think this, the one good thing is that she shows up with a blow dart and nails these two guys <laughs> in the prison. And then Emmett's like, Mom, I didn't realize you were a master builder. Better dialogue than that. Uh, what are you doing here? We can't break out of prison. We'll get us in big trouble. And then I believe, yeah, then she knocks him out too. <laughs> uh, this is a cool quote by um, this, this is a really nice food writer. And he talks about this thing that we talk about, which is that like, like, it, like, evo like evolution in nature is sort of like a bunch of random things that happen. And then at the end, when you go back and look, it looks like a miracle of purpose. Like it looks like something, like there was intention behind it. Um, and, uh, and screenwriting is the same thing. You know, you, you, or at least it is for us. Like, by the way, this doesn't work for everybody. Someone else is going to come, and Kenneth Lonergan does not work like this. <laughs> <laughs> that guy has, like, a stroke of genius and just writes it down in, like, in like you know, two days, and it's brilliant. Um, but the, This is how we work. Yes, I mean, and the, and the point was, in, in the specific case of the Lego movie, um, the story was about Emmett trying to prove himself to his mom, which ultimately 
didn't have the same kind of elemental emotions that we, we were looking for. And it ran counter to our other goal for the movie, which was to say that anyone and everyone uh, could be creative, not just someone who descended from a great master builder. And so we had to pull out the spine of the movie and rewrite it on the fly. And luckily, we had done this enough times now that it wasn't as painful. And because it was a Lego, it seemed like you could just sort of pull it apart and put it back together again anyway. Um, and ultimately, with the help of many people, um, and, and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and, and getting great contributions from our entire crew, we were able to put it together in a way that was much more satisfying and much more emotional uh, and ultimately much funnier. Good, great, Chris. That's right. <laughs> One of the morals of the story is that revisions, even though they sound really scary, can be super good. <laughs> because the thing that happened <laughs> is this thing, so this obscure like fresco in a random church, right, suddenly becomes like a worldwide hit. And it's all because of the earnestness and sincerity of the person who went in and thought they were like making it better. And in my opinion, it like brought so much joy to my life that I couldn't be more thrilled, right? Uh, and then the same thing happened to us, which is that if we had audio, you would... So that is an internet meme that happened to that scene. For like one, <laughs> for one week in like 2012, hundreds and hundreds of people were making these weird videos based on this scene. And it's, if you just look up like Gandhi's Say What, it's so worth it. <laughs> the craziest things in the world happen, and it's so fun. And I'm like, I'm so glad we made this show so that somebody could do this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like so, it's just wonderful. Uh, anyway, so, okay, so we, we, we might, we know, we think we've we, we discovered more things than we thought we knew in the first place, right? We got that. There's all this stuff, that, there's that, that stuff, and then this that. thing, and all that thing, right? So, you guys have, we got some information today, yeah. right? It wasn't terrible. You did pretty well. Um, you did pretty well. Uh, so, okay, this is like sort of our concluding like, mission statement. Uh, humans are the best animals, right? Uh, we, are the, we are the smartest animals, and, we, and our art making is better than any other animal in the animal kingdom, uh, except possibly for birds, <laughs> All right? I'm super excited about birds. This is a bowerbird. It makes these crazy nests, <laughs> okay? And, it, and if you like, take one thing and you move it out of the way, the bird will come and like, put it back. Uh, it does this as a mating ritual. It uses our garbage and turns it into like, these beautiful things. Uh, and, and the reason that we want to show you this is that you are all way smarter than a bird. <laughs> birds are really <laughs> dumb. Birds so are bird so can do it. stupid. <laughs> and look what they can do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they work really hard. To make, the, to make these crazy, beautiful uh, garbage nests. And, and it's very important to us that people remember that they have this innate ability to tell stories and make art. It's baked into the DNA of basically every living creature on Earth to be able to do this. And all you have to do is not underestimate yourself and work really, really, really hard. Be open, listen to other people, and work your butt off.
That's it. That's it. That's all you have to do. So we have designed a pledge for everyone to say together, are you ready to do this with me? Okay? Repeat after me. Don't worry. I know you don't know the whole pledge. You don't have to commit to the whole pledge just with the first sentence. All right? I will make new things. I will make new things. That's great. Even if I don't That's good. Very good. Guys, now, I really, okay. really, really like that. I, How many of you guys uh, sing and dance? Yay! All right, all right. That's better. better. That's better. All right. Thank you, thank guys. You. Thank we you really much. appreciate it. Now, Justin, I'm going to come over to this side so Justin can sit here. Oh, yeah. You want some room? Yes. Don't how do we, slip. How do we do? Do we run long? Watch your step. How, how long do you know that? what? You were pretty much exactly on the time allotted. I mean, you Unbelievable. That's so great because we practiced it so many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clearly. Clearly. <laughs> Did not take our own rewriting advice. Okay. That's true. So I'm, I'm here now in the writing room with you. Yes, yes. here we are. Um, Welcome. Inner circle. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and this posture isn't right, man. Is it not? Okay. No, it's kind of like this. Super. Yeah, this is better. And you talked about <laughs> making these revisions and kind of cutting stuff out and rewriting. And that's easier said than done, though, isn't it? I mean, because you have an emotional attachment with what you're oh, writing. Oh, yeah. No, it's so miserable. Painful. That's why we're so sad all the time. And, 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 and literally, I mean, when you come up with a gag, say, particularly with something like animation, animation can take years to do. Mm. How do you kind of... Do you keep refreshing those gags, or how do you uh, yeah. know you've got the right gag? I mean, how, how does that kind of work? Well, there is a danger, obviously. The thing that made you laugh the first time, and maybe the second and third time, by the time you've gone through this thing 27 times, it's not making you laugh anymore. Um, and so that's why showing it to an audience, letting someone else read it, and if someone else is responding to it, you know, okay, this is still working. I know it's not making me laugh anymore, but again, you've got to trust the audience, and that's, and that's the best way to, to fight the... I'm tired of this joke, and turn it into the bad fresco. And it's great, obviously, you know, that you clearly have like involved like the crews you work with, and you're very kind of open to suggestion. But everybody has you know, different opinions about things, and what makes some one person laugh doesn't always work. So how do you kind of you know instinctively kind of know what to go with? Otherwise, it could be a completely sort of schizophrenic. Yeah, thing. right. Well, we're, we're ultimately yeah. we're the deciders, right? right. We and don't take every suggestion that yeah. comes our way. That'd be crazy. <laughs> but it, but it's it's really that that you're uh, you're keeping yourself open to suggestion and wanting to celebrate the the thing that somebody is bringing to the table. So even if it's you know the janitor, uh, you know hearing that suggestion is such valuable information because you do get lost in the weeds. So that's why, like, when we've got great crew members, like, like, like we do on this movie, you're, you know, you're looking to the DP to go, like, what's inspiring that guy? Because I want to get the best out of him. But ultimately, you are the the person who is carrying the story forward. And someone might say, "Ooh, what if you did this?" You say, "Like, that's a cool idea," but it kind of goes against what we need to set up for later in the movie. Um, or, but if you hear, if you're open and you're listening to a lot of people, there'll be common threads where people. Like, I get confused about this thing, or I don't understand this thing. Over and over and over again, you'll get to that spot. And so that's when you really have to listen and go, like, okay, something's wrong here because people keep saying this. And we have to find our own way to solve it 
usually that sort of feels true to, the, to our voice. Um, and that's how you make it consistent uh, and still feel like it's your own, but being open to, to uh, the, the truth of what people are, how people are reacting to it. It seems, I mean, in, in Hollywood in particular, that actually, you know, I mean, the whole purpose of these screenwriter lectures are to sort of really herald and celebrate writing, because actually the writers often seem to be at the bottom of the pile in lots of respects. Oh, yes. yes. Well, if you're on a plane and you're sitting next to somebody who's like a little too curious about what you do, if you tell them you're a director, then you've got like a half hour conversation on your hands. If you say you're a writer, they shut up immediately <laughs> and leave you alone. And, and it's super like say, sad. I inherited a box company from my dad. Yeah. <laughs> um. Cardboard boxes are a super right. not interesting and, thing to talk about. And you've touched on the fact that obviously, you know, there were certain projects, including Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, that you were originally fired from. But mm. is that, I mean, especially when you're sort of at the start of your career, is that always a kind of worry that you've got this kind of slightly kind of precarious sort of, yes. um, you know? Yeah, and it, I think it's a real hazard because the minute you, the, the, the turning point on Cloudy was when we decided that we were so miserable we wanted to quit. And then we called our lawyer and we said, we want to leave the movie. We don't think we can make a good movie. And he said, don't quit. Get fired. Yeah. You get six <laughs> months pay if you get fired. We're like, that's brilliant. So we're just going to like make the movie we want until somebody tells us to stop. And they never did. Right. And, and, but we, and we were like, please, if you don't like this, fire us. Please fire us. We're dying. Because not all notes are good. And sometimes notes are being given not from a genuine reaction to a script, but from uh, a sort of fear-based place or something that is not, I'm reading this and I like this and I don't like this and I'm confused about this. It's, some, it's from something totally different. Or someone has their own idea that doesn't quite fit with what you're trying to do. And you, you shouldn't try and do every single note because it, it's, not, um, it's not healthy. But, uh, but there's always, oftentimes, uh, good thoughts in there, especially if it's coming from a sincere, genuine place. And there are, there are times where there'll be somebody who came up with the initial idea for a film who leaves very early on, but they kind of keep the credit. I mean, I, I, I don't really understand how the writer's credit thing works, because there can be I mean, literally dozens of writers sometimes on films by the time it's gone from one bit to the end. Yeah, and, and you can game it, too. Like, if you really care about that stuff, change all the character names. That's super important. And if you want but to steal right, credit from somebody else, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we have the opposite point of view, which is kind of like... Especially when you're directing a movie, like there's, you've got plenty of credit, you know. Like there's, you don't need to like gobble up other people's necessarily. And as directors and producers, which obviously you, cause you're you're juggling a lot, does when when it's a project that you haven't written, um, how do you kind of treat the writers in terms of? I mean, do you invite them Terribly. to the Terribly. Terribly. I mean, respect. there's like when when we're our best selves, we we try to be as inclusive as possible, you know. Um, I think one of the hazards of writing on a project that we're producing is that we're probably more opinionated than most about what the writing needs to be, right? Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, but we are, I've been on the other side and are still constantly on the other side. So we, um, you know, we're approaching movies as writers first. So we're, you know, we're very obviously involved in, in the screenplays for every movie that, that we're involved in whether we're producing it or directing it, and um, have a lot of very strong opinions. But we're, we speak the language of writers, so we usually it's coming from a place of mutual respect, and we're working with people that we love and admire. Right now, we're working with you know, Larry Kasdan, who's 
uh, once William Goldman dies, will be the greatest living screenwriter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you work with the second. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, yeah. Um, you know, it's amazing to work with really talented people, and we are taking a current master class in screenwriting from him because um, his his style is very different from ours. He doesn't work this way at all. Right. You know, he's like, I write it once and I'm good. <laughs> right. And we have you know, a, It's great. It's a great luxury if you can do it that way. Um, and we're much messier and sloppier. And we work where we're way too verbose. And then we break it down and, and cook it down like a roux into <laughs> something uh, m more concentrated. And he has an ability to be succinct um, and, and get the point across much more efficiently than we can do out of the gate, which has been a great uh, uh, example for us to take. Yeah. I'm, bear I'm bearing in mind that your approach has been so kind of open and collaborative until now. And, and obviously you've talked, obviously when you work in a studio and there's a lot of money at stake, you know, you've talked about test audiences and the studio execs and the producers, but is there almost a danger that if you become too successful, you're going to stop getting that? Yeah, and, and matter of fact, these days, I don't know that's because we're successful, but these days we tend to be harder on the material than anybody else. So we, have, we used to have arguments with the studio where we were like, you guys have to stop giving us notes. Like, the movie's good. Like, please leave us alone. And now we have arguments, like, just the other day. Like, the movie's not good enough. Like, what do you guys do? You can't just finish it. Like, you can't be satisfied with just this good test. Like, it can be, like, 30% better, and it's going to mean a lot to the bottom line if you do that. And, and there's, there, like, the Lego movie got a lot better in the last six weeks. You know, it got a lot better in the, in, like, in the, during the mix. And it's because when everybody else was, like, pretty satisfied, we were like, mm, that joke still bums me out. Like, can we loop something in there? This, like, action sequence is kind of unclear. I think it might be because it, there's, like, too much sound going on. Maybe we can strip some of that out. I mean, you just never stop. And we touched on, obviously, working for a big studio, but with a Lego movie, you've got a kind of double whammy because you've got a massive corporation that yeah. want to protect their brand as well. Yes, that's yeah. right. And, and, and what are the kind of constraints of working within that? And what was, the, I mean, were the things that you just, you just outright couldn't do? Well, you know... We and, couldn't do the clockwork orange yes. indoctrination. <laughs> there was a scene in which Emmett had been captured and then they peeled his eyes open and made him watch a... A Clockwork Orange type of video. Like a that, bunch of boring things, That they right? thought was A, too disturbing, and B, like a reference to an R-rated movie uh, that they did not for think was appropriate. For the most part, we, we had a lot of latitude, don't you think? Yeah, we like, totally tricked them, for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was great. But we, we, we love that, like what that brand stands for. You know, like it's about ingenuity and creativity and, and like flexibility and, and things that last. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, how could you not get inspired by that? And the fact that it's so democratic, that people make their own weird little films out of those bricks in their basement. And that's the kind of movie we wanted to make. And were the things that you learned from making the first movie that you've been able to use when it's come to the second movie? Well, you mean the Lego you know, movie in terms of Lego, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, the trick on that one is that it was a movie about originality, and then now you have to make a sequel to that movie about originality. <laughs> And it's super hard. Yeah. And, and we, we already did our one trick for, in the Jump Street sequel. Of like doing the same thing again and being yeah. like, oh. Yeah, like doing a sequel about how dumb it, an idea it is to make a sequel. So that's <laughs> finished. Uh, and so we actually had to make a movie that was good. <laughs> uh, but it was really hard, uh, like figuring out 
um, a storyline that was just as surprising uh, and um, just as challenging and made the Lego Corporation people just as nervous as... Yeah, that was literally the goal. We were like, oh, we have this <laughs> opportunity to make a sequel to like a big hit movie, and, and the tendency is to just try to repeat the success of the past, and we thought that it won't be any fun if we don't use it as an opportunity to take a huge risk. So let's do something that no one's expecting, and hopefully that will come to pass. But, but uh, the, the, you know... The, the, the script that we wrote, I think, is scary. <laughs> and like really yeah. hard to make, yeah. And in, in writing terms, the difference between live action animation is, is considerable really in the sense that when, you, when you're making a live action film, more often than not, you, kind of, you make the film and it, a lot of it comes together in the editing, but you're kind of doing it in reverse in animation. You're kind of almost mm -hmm. editing before you go on to make the film. That's it, you make the movie backwards. Right, but you you like you you like edit it and then you shoot it, and then uh, at the very 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 end of the process you finish the screenplay. But what's great about it is it allows for iteration. You get to see that the storyboards, and you get to see uh, a crummy animatic of the movie in its worst form when it's not uh, all beautiful, uh, and you get to see if if that makes you feel something, then it's really going to work when it's all finished. And it also gives you a lot of chances to make it better before you spend a lot of money. Whereas when you're making a live action movie, you've got to work on that script a lot and be really, really confident about it because once you shoot it, you know, you've got the pieces to work with and that's about it. I mean, you talked about 20, 22 Jump Street, I think, mm -hmm. having a lot of material. Is that because a lot of it was improvised as well? or was it, yeah. Yes, and also because we are nervous, uh, obsessive humans as we said before, and we uh, like to cover ourselves and protect ourselves. And, you know, we're not sure how the feeling of the flow of the movie is going to need. Uh, and so sometimes you'll do a scene and you'll be like, well, let's do one where they're kind of less angry at each other. This was kind of harsh. Well, let's do a, a sweetie pie version of the scene. And now let's do one where it's really, really angry at each other so that we can, in edit, have some options and, and find, uh, find a balance. Especially in comedy, you just yeah. don't know what's going to work. And, and so you just take, you try to get as many at-bats as you possibly can. And you also don't know like, if you're going to have to cut a scene for some reason or another. It never quite comes together. So sometimes you repeat story beats. With animation, you can't do that, can you? Or it's very difficult to do that. I mean, you You've already about, spent all that money yeah. once it's yeah. got... But it happens when we record voices. You know, when you record, like, we, we record, like, uh, like, Will Arnett for Lego Batman... You know, even as producers, we're sitting there going, like, why don't you, oh, that's funny, like, why don't you try this weird thing? And then, and then suddenly it's, like, Will Arnett and Zach Galifianakis, like, riffing about, like, their relationship or something. And that winds up becoming something that, 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 that wound up being a theme for the whole movie. Could we just talk a little bit about um, TV writing as opposed to film writing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because obviously it's a very different discipline. Right. Yes. And when you're working for an established TV show, obviously, I mean... I mean, how, how does that work in terms of you're given a couple of episodes that you have to write, and is there a sort of character Bible they'll give you, or how, how, how does it's like it work? A bit higher, it's like, so it's group writing, and so like our process is, is kind of, you know, derives from our experience in television, which is, you know, 10 people around a table, all trying to make each other laugh. Um, what happens is, um, as a group, you, you're, you break all the stories, put them on a whiteboard, figure out where the season's going, and once you have an outline that everyone's agreed on, then they send you off uh, as the writer with sometimes like a week to 
to write a, a draft of the script, and then you bring it back in, and everyone's read it, and everyone's got thoughts, and then you go page by page in this room of 10 people um, making, trying to make it better. Fix, fix story things that aren't working, and then make the jokes funnier. And it's a really painful process watching the thing that you worked on. You're like, well, but the, 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 yeah. um, the whole time. And it's very, but you have to, if you're defensive in that room, you're not going to get hired back next year. So you kind of have to take it, even when they're sort of ruining it. Yeah, you have to act like, oh, yeah, you got to want to get rid of that joke. I got 10 million more in the bank. <laughs> right. Easy. Right. And, and so what, what, the way to survive emotionally that experience is to write very quickly and not be and be very grateful that somebody is helping to fix your B plus scene instead of be f infuriated that they're taking what I thought was like an A plus, like everything perfect. Precious jewel. Jewel and then messing it up. Like it's just, you're just never gonna, like you, you'll never get any sleep if you're that way. But once again, as I was sort of saying before, that's easier said than done. I mean, you talk about being human beings and ego is a major part of the human being, totally, isn't it? Yes, totally. And And, and, and uh, how, how do you kind of, you know, I mean, it's just, a, you just have to compartmentalize it. And yeah. It's just, yeah, you, know. well, you get a bit used to it yeah. and you get, you learn to listen to yourself and know like, all right, I think I'm just being precious. And then if I wake up the next day and I go, mm, that one thing was still like great. It'll, I'll never forget it. And then right when the time comes when we need something, I'll pounce and go, well, what about uh, that one little bit? And yeah. you never know, it might, it might make its way back in. Right, and having a partner is always keeping your ego in check because you're never sort of the auteur. You're always uh, part of a team that's, that's creating something and having to sort of uh, defend and adjust and, and modify all, all the time. And you've, and you've talked about the Miller and Lord process as opposed to sort of the Kasdan process, so to speak. Yes. I mean, are, are there some films or TV shows that have just come really quickly and, and you haven't had to go through that kind of rigorous process? Or was well, it always... For, not for us. I, I'd say, like, I know that Forte wrote The Last Man Pilot really fast. Pretty quickly, yeah. You know, and there's some, there's like a benefit to writing really quickly because it, things come out... You know, it's like a difference between like a poem and a song. Like a poem, you obsess over every word. A song, like kind of like strikes you like lightning, and you like write it in five minutes, and it's done. You know, and it's kind of perfect. And he wrote a first draft that was kind of like that. And then there was a, t and then we did a ton of rewriting. You know, we we he did a ton of rewriting, and um, and then at some point we went back to that old draft and said, oh, this, there were things about this that were great, and we kind of reincorporated that back into the thing. But. You know, you, you, you need the benefit of both processes. That's why, like, when we were running a TV show, we tried to get the best of both worlds. And, and most TV shows that are run well do this. You, get, you can get the best out of the group pretty quickly. The group isn't so good at deciding whether, like, to use a, a, a comma or a semicolon, right? That's better left to, like, an individual to get through. And, and the group is great at generating a lot of ideas. And then it goes through one person's fingertips and the, the, the kind of like calculus that happens, the intuitive calculus that happens in your body of like that sounds right, that feels right, and, and that flows, that almost has to happen through one person. And that's why we still split up scenes and write them individually because um, there's something about not having someone looking over your shoulder and having the privacy to like explore different ways to say something or try a little run without having, feeling like every second has to be defended. There's like, 
something that has to go through a single person. And you're actually, when you're doing that bit, geographically going to different yep. areas, are you, and doing that, yeah? Yeah, like, so you like to write at home. I need to be in a coffee shop where, like, there's a bunch of noise and stuff, and, and, uh, and then we come back together. And, and, and that process is really important, too, you know, just going, like, why did you cut this line? Oh, I see. And we even have, like, a kind of a linguistic process whereby... Which is derived from, I figured out, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. Really? Yeah, like, so I had a, like a tape of like the, the like Robert Altman Popeye movie that I watched like a billion times when I was seven years old. And before that, what it was taped over was that guy, John Gray or whatever his name is, uh, it, it, men are from Mars. And, it was, and it's this trick, which is if you're mad at me about uh-huh. something or you have a point of view that I don't understand, if I say your point of view out loud, to you and repeat it back, then I like have it, like something happens in my body that makes me understand better what you're going through. So a lot of times you like, he'll have a note and, and, and I'll like, now I do it automatically, but I used to have to concentrate. It would be like, so what you're saying is it, it like, you know, it's bothering you that this thing is happening, da, 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 da. And if he starts nodding and like, I'm getting it, then that is really valuable information. And now I've like taken ownership of that thing. And now he feels heard and now we can proceed with solving the problem. That's what I meant about like kind of taking on faith that that's a real problem. And um, as you referred to before, when you um, on Twitter said that you were coming today, you kind of said, oh, you know, um, anybody wanted to write in with questions. And, it, and I think we've kind of dealt with the very best one of those, which was what flavor Pringles uh, do you like? Right. Yes. Um, so I think we're going to move yes. on from that. Bait, and that bait actually, shrimp. Is I there think, that flavor? Um, I'd like to yet. propose that. <laughs> so I think what we are going to do is we're going to move away now and see whether anybody here uh, would like to ask a question. There are some mics around. Thank you. That's one of the best uh, screenwriting lectures of the series that oh, we've gosh, seen. And, yes! And, yes! And, That's what we want. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Do we get a BAFTA now? Is that how <laughs> Here's your BAFTA. <laughs> yeah. Certainly the most coffee cups. Um, so <laughs> question two. W- one of the things... No, that was great. I think that was great. That was a good question. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, w- one of the things that, that comes through all your work, one, kind of one of the tropes that is the funniest, is the idea that the characters in your movies are as aware of the cliches of what's happening as the audience are. And you kind of take that like literally right to the edge of, of, of the joke. <laughs> like almost then, looking yeah. right into the lens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you know where the edge is and not go beyond it to sort of uh, still yeah. have it be funny and not have it been like a nodding? Yes. Yeah, so, right. yeah, sometimes we, there are jokes uh, that get pitched that feel like they should be right, but then we go, ah, that's, you wouldn't, no one could possibly say that in a world where they don't know that the movie, that there's a movie being made. What's the one that Parnell says? Oh yeah, so that that one is. That's the end that of Act two, two, right? At the end of uh, <laughs> in the end of Act two of Twenty One Jump Street, this is sort of a late edition. Was they mess up a play of Peter Pan, and uh, and he runs out on the screen and says, "That's the end of Act two, and the curtain closes. And then we cut to black, and it's the end of Act two. Right. <laughs> um, and that, but it made sense in the scene. He really was saying it for that reason. There was, That's uh, what makes it fun, right. I think, that it's like yeah. it's been worked out both ways. And then we were pitching jokes for Ice Cube to say at the end of 22 Jump Street on the beach, uh, and he was pitching something, or we pitched something that was like, oh, I got to have that threequel money, but it didn't make sense in the world. Uh, and it was kind of funny when he said it, but it didn't. But in edit, but, yeah, it seemed kind of sweaty. It Also, it like changes with time because 
now that we've done that a few times, it feels like, oh, yeah, I feel like I can feel us doing the same move. It hasn't stopped us yet, but someday <laughs> it might. Um, but, yeah, I think there's like a, um, you can't shatter, for, uh, for me personally, if that fourth wall is completely shattered, um, it, it. Yeah, there's, um, it's like not, it's no fun. Yeah, you're, yeah, there's no dance to it. Um, and so you, you feel like there's got to be, you want to get right up as close to that line as possible and, and be like, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. Yeah, right. You want to feel like you're getting away with something. Right. Yeah. So that when he hits me, I can say, Mom! <laughs> I didn't touch him! Dude, I didn't break the fourth wall. Um, <laughs> there was some, I think there was somebody sort of right towards the back, and the people at the back always get missed out. Do you want to... Hey guys, um, I've been a huge fan of all your uh, work oh since gosh. like Clone High. Um, I actually wanted to just ask about that. Um, how did that kind of initial, uh, that first series, how did you get that away? Um, I mean, I know you kind of went into it a little bit in, your, in the um, sort of history, but. So uh, when we got our first job uh, of making Saturday morning cartoon shows and making the Bronte sisters thing. I had like a folder of old ideas from college, and one of them was clones of historical figures that go to college together. And then I pitched that to Phil, and Phil thought they should be in high school because they could be more angsty. And it was a time when there was sort of Dawson's Creek, 90210, a lot of these sort of teen dramas were on the air. And it's sort of, oh, that's a funny, trope filled uh, world to, to take this idea through. And so those two ideas came together. We pitched it to Fox for, for the Fox network, and it did not, we made a pilot, uh, but then the president of Fox uh, got quit, we'll say. And uh, <laughs> he got quit. <laughs> yeah, he got yeah. quit. Uh, and so did our pilot, but then uh, we showed it to MTV, and they were like, oh, yeah, sure. Homework sounds like a great thing for our kids to watch uh, on television. So we were able to make it that way. And we had no idea what we were doing. And we were in charge of a TV show. And we told them that we knew what we were doing because it was animation. And we were experts in animation because we made those terrible student films that you saw. <laughs> um, and so they didn't know anything about how to make animation. And so they would say, like, oh, we want to give you notes on the script. And we'd say, oh, we can't because you know, the animation process, it's already <laughs> a thing. It's <laughs> yeah. um, that was before we learned to embrace notes. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of how that came to be. And we, in over our heads, often wrong, never in doubt. Yes. I've got a question down here on the second row. A microphone's just making its way. I'd love to see your expanded version of the Bronte Sisters thing in a full-length <laughs> feature. Of the what? Um, oh, the Bronte Sisters that we had. Oh, uh, no, okay, just... So that was... It was going to be uh, It was a series of historically based action figure There's like a toys, whole Bible that we have somewhere. Including the uh, Gutenberg printing press and yeah. snow cone machine <laughs> that made like ink, ink, so, Yeah, you ink would pour ink cones. into the snow cones and then the kids would eat it. There was like ink just dripping down there. There was a Gandhi one too that was like a pacifist grip Gandhi that uh, <laughs> latched onto your finger. It didn't hurt, but just sort of stayed there forever. Uh, Anyway, they were really fun. Just uh, there was like a He-Man thing. It was Masters of the Harlem Renaissance, <laughs> and it was it was. It was a, I was really disappointed when we didn't get to we make did them. Mighty Morphin Charles Darwin that evolves. Yeah. Uh, anyway, 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 ask your question. That's a, um, yeah, that was, I think I that just, was a pre-question statement. Given the success you're having at the moment, are there any 
dream projects in the future that you've that you would like to do? You know, like Kubrick had a Napoleon project you'd never made, but is there right. one that, oh, yeah. out there that you would our, love like, to do? Our, we need one. Like, what's our, our white whale? Our Don Quixote. We've always wanted to make a billion dollar movie. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Cost a billion dollars. Yeah, it's Has featuring the, like the Beatles catalog. <laughs> And a uh, nine-tenth nine scale. Of, it's all uh, on water. Uh, yeah, nine-tenth scale model of Paris. Um, <laughs> um, It'll uh, probably happen. Yeah, right. We, In uh, our lifetime, that will happen. Um, we've always wanted to make a, a Clone High movie or something, but we've never had the time and or uh, uh, time to do that. Yeah. I just want to um, take Clone High back on the air. That would be the best. Uh, but I don't know. I feel like all of our dream projects are so not for anyone. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, but hopefully we'll... Uh, I think we've been doing a lot of movies based on other properties, and I think uh, hopefully in the near future we'll be doing some more original stuff. That right. We wanna, we've been, been trying to make the to. most original version of like an adaptation of an existing property we possibly can. But now... I think I would like to do the most generic version of an, of original. an original idea. Now that's a good that we point. can think of. Yeah. Okay. I'll, um, there's a question right in the very, very middle. Thanks. So uh, the parallels to game design, screenwriting, the games are quite uncanny, actually. And I'm quite curious, what do you personally do in your own time outside screenwriting uh, to keep yourself inspired and to draw any kind of, to help your creative process later on? Because you need to draw from something. Is it hobbies? Is it, what is it? I uh, remember hobbies. Those were fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is really like we like one. This is one of the few kinds of things we make time for, is is being able to talk to young filmmakers and other people about work because you almost never get a chance to do that. The mm -hmm. movie comes out and then you know there's some reviews and stuff, but there's very rarely like a like a real dialogue about cinema, and yeah. so like when. Um, if I have any spare time, like, a, you know, being on the jury of a film festival or, or, or something, if finding a way, even like with BAFTA, like being able to like, being, being um, you know, feeling like you've got to like watch every movie so that you do a good job voting that year, you know, that being able to watch other people's work and get inspired by it is really, really mm -hmm. special. And also going to art museums and uh, absorbing the culture and keeping up with the news and just sort of feeling like you're part of uh, society <laughs> so that you can, you know, reading articles about things and then you can, and then every day we're coming in going like, oh, I saw this crazy article about these butterflies that do this weird thing in, in Guatemala and we should, you know, we should look at that for an alien for Star Wars. Right, um, right. And, uh, and like I heard birds do this crazy thing. thing. Like we yeah. try to think about that stuff as much as we possibly can. Um, but I can't remember. And, and we tell people who are um, want to be screenwriters or directors uh, that are going into university to you know study something other than film because you need to have something to say um, and to look for uh, you know to have a point of view uh, about. And so, just the more anything that you can soak in, the better. It all comes through. You've you've talked in the last couple of questions about not having a, a ton of time at the minute and it's it's not that surprising because you have roughly 400 million projects <laughs> yeah. like in the works at various points and and whether you're producing or writing how do you how do you deal with 
moving between them? Do you do you literally go right Monday Star Wars, Tuesday Lego, Wednesday Spider Man, or <laughs> no? We, um, I don't know if you can tell we're not that organized. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, these days it's mostly Star Wars, um, but like our weekends and some nights we will uh, we get sent things from the Lego people or the TV people or, or any of the other things, and we have to compartmentalize it into a very small place because it can bleed in to the rest of the time. But uh, our days now, our work days are, are almost entirely one thing. But we are, we are spread too thin and we're doing too many things. And so we're trying to... Uh, the idea was that for the, some of the projects to like, fail and not go forward. Right. <laughs> and not enough of them did that. So yeah. now... We're in trouble. All the spaghetti stuck to the wall, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big flaw. Don't make such sticky spaghetti if you can, if you can avoid it. Um, uh, so um, I would like to be doing a few less things so that we could uh, focus on them more and, and be more helpful. And so other things, the, the best thing we've been able to do is hire really good people that we trust uh, to do good work and then... Um, and our dream is to become obsolete on things that we produce where we are just going, yay, and then um, and get paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's our dream. We're not there yet, but we are getting there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're here in London, I know, for a while. You've got Star Wars coming up. You have got multiple projects we touched on. Um, so really, really grateful that you were here for the final of this year. Kind oh, of it's, we feel so lucky to be here, yeah. And a really, really massive thank you to Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Thank you very much. Thank you.